Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this joyous season of Christmas. And as much as it can be a busy season, let us stop and take the time to remember why it's a joyous season, why it's a hopeful season. We pray that you'll help us to remember and to be blessed again by the enormity of your love for us displayed in that the Son of God himself came down took on our human form, lived among us, that God made his dwelling among us and died that we might have everlasting life. We give you thanks and we pray this morning that as we get into your word that you will speak to us, that by your spirit you might speak to our hearts that we might bear good fruit in you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning, uh, as, as I'm sure a lot of you are aware, it's Christmas week. Like Christmas is happening this week. It's, I mean, I've already done my shopping, so that tells you how close to Christmas we're actually getting. And so I thought it would be appropriate this week to look at, um, look at a part of Luke's Gospel that comes right, into, right in the lead-up to when Jesus is born, right before. So uh, at this point, Mary's already uh, pregnant with little baby Jesus, and uh, they haven't yet made the journey to Bethlehem. But this story is not about Mary and Joseph, but it's about some friends of theirs. It's about uh, Elizabeth and Zechariah. Now, you may not, they're not as closely uh, related to the Christmas story as a lot of the others. We don't see Elizabeth and Zechariah in the nativities. Uh, They weren't there at the time that Jesus was born. When Mary got pregnant, um, we know it was something that God did, that he Uh, by the power of his Holy Spirit, caused her to conceive a son. And during the time that she was pregnant, uh, she went to stay with a friend of hers in the hill country of Judea, a friend Elizabeth. And the Bible doesn't tell us exactly why, but it's entirely possible that, uh, or indeed quite likely, that it was because the people of Nazareth might have noticed that the baby bump was growing a bit more than was expected for the date when she... Uh, got, got married to Joseph because, of course, this, they, uh, the, Jesus was conceived before that marriage happened. And this woman, Elizabeth, and her husband, John, they were both older people, uh, you know, beyond the age where they would expect to be able to have any children, and they didn't have any children. And... Uh, Zechariah, he was a priest. He was somebody who served uh, in the temple of God. Not all the time, um, but all of the people who were descended from Aaron, they would sort of do, do a shift. Every year they would spend some time in the temple serving God there and then they would go out uh, into the places where they lived and they would serve God uh, in their own communities. And it was during his time in the temple where an angel appeared to Zechariah and said to him, that your wife, Elizabeth, is going to have a son. And 
he didn't believe it uh, because of their old age. And I think there's probably many, many of us who would say, hang on, that's not possible. That would be their first thought. And so, uh, to cut a long story short, uh, because of that, because, because he sort of argued back against the angel, he ended up, uh, he lost his voice. He couldn't speak. Uh, for, for the duration of Elizabeth's pregnancy. And at the end of the pregnancy, he'd been told by the angel that he was to name this child John. And at the end, of the, the, the baby was born and the people come around to him and say, what should the baby's name be? And Elizabeth has gone, uh, you know, the baby's name's going to be John. And, and the people have gone, well, there's no Johns in your family. Like normally the names, names followed along in the family. We needed, you know, it was a fairly patriarchal society. We need to check with Zechariah what the name is going to be. So they gave Zechariah a tablet for writing on and he wrote, his name is John. And from that point he could speak again. And he was praising and giving glory to God. And that's the context of the passage that we're going to be looking at today just after uh, this time, their the, the miraculous son has been born. Zechariah can speak again. And Zechariah sings this song. And it tells us, uh, well, actually, why don't I read it? At this point, his, John's father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come to his people and redeemed them. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he said through his holy prophets of long ago. Salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show mercy to our ancestors and to remember his holy covenant, the oath he swore to our father Abraham to rescue us from the hand of our enemies and to enable us to serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him, to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of God by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the path of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit and he lived in the wilderness until he appeared publicly to Israel. And at that time he became known as John the Baptist or John the Baptizer. Zechariah's spontaneous song is a song that is uh, joyful, but it's not so much focused in what God has already done for him in giving him a son. But it's a song of hope for what God is about to do. In hope, Zechariah sings a song of praise, his, his response to the goodness that God has shown to him. Because God has come to his people and redeemed them. And so far, you might think just from that that he's talking about what God has done for them through John, but the next line of the song makes it clear that 
God has revealed to him some small part of the bigger picture of what is about to happen. Because the next line of the song says, He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. Now, Zechariah was a priest. That means that he is from the line of Levi, the tribe of Levi. David is from the tribe of Judah. And so his descendant would also be from the tribe of Judah. And so immediately we begin to see this is not his son that he's singing about. This is something more that God is about to do. We can see that John is not our redeemer who will be from the line of David. Now, redeemer is not a word that we use very often uh, outside of the church context. The redeemer, the picture of the redeemer is somebody who pays off the debts, uh, pays off somebody's debt. Now, particularly in Israel, under their their law that God gave to Moses, there was uh, the leaders of each family would have the role of being the kinsman redeemer and they would have some responsibility for looking after the members of their family. And, and as part of that came a role of the redemption of debts. And so when Zechariah talks about this redeemer coming, that God has come to redeem his people, it's a picture of the, the, the price on the head, the, the, their debt being paid off and then being restored. Now, I'd be pretty happy if, if somebody paid off my debts. Uh, like most people in Australia, I didn't have enough money to buy my own house just like that. And so I have some pretty significant debts that need to be paid off. And I'm sure some of you know that, know that feeling as well. And as I said, I'd be stoked if somebody came along and said, hey, the rest of your debt is forgiven. But this is... This is a debt that I can repay myself. It's going to take a while, but I can repay it. The Bible tells us that we've all inherited a debt that we can never repay. That from the first people that were created, from Adam and Eve, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Everyone has had the decision whether we're going to do what our creator has made us for or whether we are going to reject his right, uh, his authority over our lives and choose to be our own authorities and go our own way. And each and every one of us has made the wrong choice, at least at times. I'm not saying every single decision we've ever made has been for evil, but we also can't say that every single decision we've ever made has been for good has been for the good of others, has been to the glory of God rather than what's in my own best interests and what suits me. And the the way the Bible teaches us about the debt that we have is that, I mean, there, there is no amount of good things that we can do that make, make the bad things so that they didn't happen, that undo the things that we've done. There's a picture that, um, uh, like a, a parable that Jesus told that used this image of debt uh, as, as what we owe to God. And he, he used the example of a king 
who had a who called in a servant who owed him a huge sum of money. What what amounts to billions of dollars if you if you adjust for inflation from two thousand years ago. I don't know about you, I can't pay off a billion dollar debt. I couldn't even pay off the interest on a billion dollar debt. We have a debt that we can never repay. But God used that law, that picture of the Redeemer that he had given uh, to Israel to teach us about the forgiveness of debt, to teach us about the Redeemer that can take our debts away. And God had given Zechariah a glimpse of what he was doing, that, that Zechariah's son John was just the beginning was the one who is going to prepare the way for the one who would redeem us, who would set us free from sin and from death. So for Zechariah, that first Christmas was all about the hope of a redeemer, a saviour that was to come. And redemption is not all that he said that this, uh, this one from the line of David was going to do. Salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. To show mercy to our ancestors, to remember his holy covenant, the oath he swore to our father Abraham. To rescue us from the hand of our enemies and to enable us to serve him without fear. In holiness and righteousness before him all our days. Three times in that he refers to salvation from our enemies, from the hands of those who hate us. And he sees in that that God is fulfilling the promises that he made to Abraham and to Moses thousands of years before Jesus came to this earth. He saw a promise that this freedom from the enemies would also be a freedom to serve God without fear and without opposition. And if you were in first century, or actually first century BC at this point in time, first century BC Palestine, if you heard these words, salvation from our enemies, from the hand of all who hate us, that God is going to rescue us from the hand of our enemies, you would think, yes, God is going to do something about these Romans. At this point in time, God's people living in Judah uh, had been, I think it was about 63 BC, a fellow by the name of Pompey had rolled into Jerusalem with his armies and it had been a very bad day for all of the people in Jerusalem. And since that point, all of Judea had been under Roman occupation and the Romans were not known for their leniency or their kindness to the people that they ruled over. And so you can imagine that anybody who might have heard this song would have been going, yes, salvation from the hands of our enemies. God's going to kick out the Romans. We're going to be able to rule ourselves again and to worship God in freedom without you know, any opposition and without any oversight from any other country. Anybody who heard Zechariah's prophecy you know, could be forgiven for thinking that that's what it was about. It sounds like the days of David and Solomon would return, the great, the height of 
the kingdom of Israel, like the, where, where they ruled themselves. And these kings that glorified God, for the most part. And yet Luke, throughout the rest of the gospel, shows us that this is absolutely not what Jesus did as the prophesied saviour. He healed a centurion, a Roman centurion's servant. Uh, the ser- this centurion came up to him and said, um, you know, my, my servant is very ill, but I know that if you just say the word, he will be healed. And Jesus didn't just heal him, he then turned around and, and really rubbed it in the faces of all of the Jewish people and said, I haven't seen faith like this in Israel. And he, he, you know, he applauds, in a way, the, the faith of this Roman centurion. He famously taught people that if someone strikes you on the cheek, you, know, you don't hit them back. Turn the other cheek also. And then, you know, that's the famous part of that, that saying, but we forget there was another part that goes with it. If somebody asks you to carry a load for a mile, carry it for two miles. Now, who's going to be asking people in Judea to carry a load for them for a mile? The Roman army. The soldiers uh, would be telling, rather than having to carry all their kit themselves, Uh, This was a thing that happened in those days. You, carry this. And Jesus says, if they tell you to carry it for one mile, show them the grace and the love of God by carrying it for two. Not grudgingly, but to glorify God. And as he hung on a cross, crucified by Roman soldiers, he prayed for their forgiveness. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. So does that mean that Jesus is not the one who fulfills Zechariah's prophecy? Freedom, sorry, salvation from from our enemies, from the hand of those who hate us. What Jesus does is he shifts our focus to our true enemy. Our enemy is not flesh and blood. The Bible all throughout, but especially in the New Testament, is quite clear that we have an enemy. One who hates God and one who hates his people. He's known as the accuser. He's known as the enemy. Uh, That's what these names Satan and the devil mean. Jesus shifts our focus to our true enemy. That the the ones we need to worry about are not the ones who might make us carry a load for a mile. But it's the one who has kept us trapped and enslaved to our sin in a way that we cannot escape by our own efforts. He's made it clear to us that our enemy is the one who delights in destroying what God has made good. Who knows that his destruction is certain and seeks the destruction of as many others as he can manage. The one who tries to get back at God through his creation, 
through the corruption and defiling of this world that God had made good and the people that he had made in his own image. This is the enemy that Jesus brings us salvation from. As I said, the Bible is clear that we have a debt that we could never repay. And as Paul says in his letter to the Romans, the wages of sin is death. There's only one way that sin can be paid for, that all of the ways that we have rejected God can be paid for, and that is death and separation from God for all of eternity. But the good news of God, the free gift of God, is grace through his Son, Jesus Christ. The price needed to be paid. Death was the cost. And so Jesus came, the perfect, sinless Son of God, fully God but also fully human, had fully taken on our flesh. He didn't just look like a person. He had become a human. And in that way, he took on our sin and he died to pay the price that our sins deserved. And so, in so doing, he rescued us from our enemies. He broke the power of sin and death. I mean, yes, in all likelihood, we, every person in this room will die at one point. But that will not be the end to all who believe in him. He will give everlasting life. He will come to rescue us from the hand of our enemies, from the hand of all who hate us. And then, now in part, but perfectly in the future, when he has taken us home to be with him, we will be able to serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness, before him all of our days. And I really dwelt on this point of these enemies that Jesus has rescued us from. Because I think there are a lot of Christians, a lot of people who have lost sight of the fact that our enemies are not flesh and blood. That whatever we might think about what's going on in the world right now, if we treat human governments and human beings as the enemies of the church, we make the same mistake of those who thought that the Romans were the true enemies that they needed to deal with, that the Messiah needed to deal with. And Jesus came and he showed that he had absolutely no interest in kicking out the Romans because he was there to address our real need and to defeat our real enemy. As I said, he wasn't particularly interested in overthrowing the Romans. He chose to love them instead. It's easy to say, to, to quote Jesus and to say, love your enemies when there's not really anybody that has a problem with you. It's much harder to say when life is hard. And yet that's what Jesus modelled for us. And that's what he calls us to do. To 
Choose love instead. Jesus came to bring us true salvation from our greatest enemy, from our deepest need. And as Zechariah's song reminds us, in our own small way, we can do the same for others. Because at this point of his song, Zechariah turns to his infant son, John, and he says to him, You, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him, to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven, to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the path of peace. He says to his son, you will be a prophet of the Most High. He's not the Messiah, but he still has an important role to play, to prepare the way for the Lord. And how is he to do that? He's to do that by giving his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of sins. And what did the people need to do to earn that forgiveness? Not by works, but by the tender mercy of God. The song says that in his mercy he will send the rising sun from heaven, this picture of Christ as the light of the world, shining on those who are in darkness. To show the way to God, to guide us in the path of peace. In short, forgiveness, is, forgiveness for sins is coming through Jesus by the grace of God. And that's the message that John has to share, the knowledge of salvation he has to bring to the people of Israel. And so the next thing we hear of John, he's, he's an adult and he's uh, living rough uh, out by the Jordan and people were coming to him to be baptised. And his baptism was a baptism of repentance for sins. His message was that we've all sinned. We all need God's forgiveness, but that forgiveness is available. And he, he went and he preached this message that he had been given to preach to prepare the way for the one who would bring that forgiveness of sins. Now, like John, we are also not the Messiah. Uh, we're not even John with his special uh, role as a prophet of the Most High. He had his own particular part to play. But we each have a part to play this Christmas and in all of our lives. We too can give people the knowledge of their salvation, the forgiveness of their sins. We too can do our part to show the light of the world to shine on those in darkness. Not all will receive it, but we can do our part to show, to share that knowledge and that good news. And this Christmas also we can join Zechariah in praising God for the greatness of, well, for, for Zechariah it was the greatness of what he was about to do. For us it is the greatness of what God has done for us at Christmas. He sent us a redeemer to pay the debt we could never repay. 
He's forgiven our sins through Jesus. He's rescued us from the hand of the, the one who hates us. And over this week, over the times we spend together, there might be opportunities to share the good news of the hope that we have. The good news that whatever is holding on to people, whatever guilt, whatever uh, plays upon their mind, there is forgiveness in Jesus. Not by being good enough, but because of his grace that he has shined upon us, the incredible mercy, the tender mercy of God. And it might just be something as simple as when people ask you about your Christmas, you can share with them about the the Christmas services, the carols you went to. Uh, Share a line from a carol that's been particularly meaningful for you this year. I noticed... Some of you have been quite literally shining a light with with lights all over your houses. And that can be a great way to just very simply remind people of the story of Christmas. One thing we can all do is it's very fashionable uh, in our society to complain about Christmas. Oh, you won't believe what I had to get rid of. And and my in-laws, so everything had to be speaking... And we can resist the temptation to be like that and to let the joy of this season triumph over any, uh, any complaining. And we can get excited because our Redeemer has come and our sin is undone. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have given this word to us. We thank you for your your servant, Zechariah, and the words that he has given to us. We pray that we might also praise you exuberantly with the joy that we have of knowing that you have sent us a redeemer. You have saved us from the hand of our enemies. You have given us a hope of everlasting life for all who put their trust in you because of your tender mercy. We pray that this Christmas that you might enable us to know the joy and the peace and the love of the season and that you might enable us to really show that to others, Um, not, not by our works, but just because you've so filled us with that that it overflows uh, into all that we do and all that we say. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.